HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, jumping in to tell you about this week's episode of Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food roundup. This week, we're introducing you to some amazing women taking a stand. So often, being sexually harassed feels like a loss of control, and so I wanted to have these very tangible guides to say, here's what you can do. Others are pushing for more diversity at major food industry events. I still feel really determined to do, you know, whatever I can to help shift that and in a direction that's not just more diverse, but more equitable. We also have a report on that summer business staple, the lemonade stand. The lemonade stand might be the purest form of starting a business. Low overhead, easy to get into, and requires little experience or special equipment. Don't miss Meat and Three, your weekly 15-minute food news roundup from HRN. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Search M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. And thanks, as always, for listening. on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, joining me today is New Orleans-born, Los Angeles-based writer and journalist Lolis Eric Eli. He's written for TV shows and various documentaries on history and food and is one of the founders of the Southern, Southern Food Alliance. And most recently, he appeared on David Chang's docuseries, Ugly Delicious. Thanks so much for joining me today. Of course, it's my pleasure. <laughs> so first off, you're writing for AMC's Hell on Wheels. Actually, I was writing for them a few years ago. I'm now on Amazon's Man in the High Castle. <laughs> so how does your interest in food and your writing for TV converse, if at all? Well, what happened is that when Eric Obermeyer and David Simon decided to, to make a show about New Orleans called Treme, they wanted a couple of local writers. And they'd already decided that they wanted to feature the culture of the city. So my interest in food and in music in New Orleans served well when they uh, hired me away from the time I sticking in. And so I started writing for television then. Hmm. And a lot of that show featured a chef and talked about the challenges she faced trying to uh, 
to make life whole again after Hurricane Katrina. And so my knowledge of food helped in sort of putting together some of those plot ideas and some of the, the specific cultural touch points we, we made. Right. Yeah, so I was uh, kind of stalking you online, and I saw that a lot of the projects you've worked on, be it your cookbook, your TV series, um, films, they all kind of feature Treme. And is do, do you feel like um, Southern food, specifically uh, food from New Orleans, has always been your focus? Um, I'm always interested in food and identity and food and mm-hmm. politics. And while... I think all of us have multiple identities. You can't just talk about race or gender or ethnicity or geography. A lot of my interest in food reflects uh, aspects of my identity. So certainly New Orleans figures prominently in that. Uh, The Creole tradition figures prominently in that. The African tradition figures in that, as do the European traditions. So my food explorations are, while I don't see them as being autobiographical in a sense, is uh, one great writer put it, all writing is autobiographical. And so my food writing is in many ways autobiographical in that sense. And did that kind of autobiographical um, tool, or writing about food, did that come figure forth most uh, so in your cookbook, Tomei? Um, yeah, but what Tomei allowed me to do was include most of what I had learned about New Orleans food in the con- in a pre-established context, in the context of the show. So I wasn't certain whether or not I personally had enough recipes or enough new reflections to justify a book. But I wanted that book to not merely be some recipes from the show, but rather to be a book that if you were to go to the bookstore and we're trying to find a New Orleans book, then it would be a serious contender for the one book you would buy. It'd be that complete, that informational, and that thorough in its analysis of the food of my my region. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually had a cookbook ghostwriter on the show a couple weeks ago, and um, I was talking to her about how when I go to the bookstore and I pick up a cookbook, I'm not necessarily going to ever cook those recipes, but it does feel like a travel log or um, I'm picking them up because I want to, you know, pretend that I'm in China for a little bit or pretend I'm in New Orleans (laughs) for a little bit. And it's like, I just want to get the sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. In your other cookbook, uh, Smokestack Lightning, you say, barbecue alone encompasses the high and low brows, the sacred and the profane, the urban and the rural, the learned and the unlettered, the blacks, the browns, the yellows, the reds, and the whites. And how does food, or as you say specifically barbecue, level the proverbial playing field? Well, it levels the playing field initially because the whole concept of barbecue is that it should be informal. And in the sort of European tradition, sometimes informal can seem to be less serious, less significant, less learned. But in the case of barbecue, the techniques involved are so complicated that despite the fact that you may well be eating off of butcher paper as opposed to fine china, the work that went into it is no less uh, significant. The other thing that happens in barbecue is that because it was such long, hot, dirty, undesirable work, it often was the thing that poor people did and that rich people really enjoyed, or specifically 
um, that black people did and that white people enjoyed. Now, mind you, none of these things are absolute. There's certainly a whole lot of great white pit masters throughout the history. But nonetheless, you get a sort of emblematic sense that barbecue was associated with the people who are not necessarily the top of society. And so a big part of what we now have going on is an embrace of that aspect of American culture. Um, the informal aspect of it, the um, uh, just the, the those things which makes us make us more distinct from Europe than might have been the case, um, you know, even thirty or forty years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was talking to this um, ex winemaker a few weeks ago, and um, I'm kind of still struggling with this. Uh, question, which is that I feel like while, you know, there is the really beautiful way of looking at it that um, barbecue may unite uh, high class and quote unquote high class and lower class, lower income um, peoples, it also, th- there seems to be kind of like this glorification of um, like, oh, I'm just going to forage or I'm just going to, you know, f- get back in touch with my, um, I don't know, lesser or like going back to more primitive quote unquote methods and which I don't feel like mm-hmm. is also necessarily good or really mm-hmm. tr- <laughs> struggling um so how do you think people are to navigate that is there like a sensitive way of doing so well i have i think you're alluding to a far larger question which is the question a progress in modernity mm. and the assumption that we often have, which is that as technology and specialization of labor have increased and improved, then society is overall improved. And so part of what we begin to realize is that there are some old techniques and some old traditions which are worth incorporating even in the current context. So while we can go to the supermarket and not only buy everything that's available in our region, but the truth is a lot of what is available throughout the world, there are some reasons, um, economic, cultural, and pleasurable, for growing your own food. And while um, you do not need wild fruits and berries and, and roots to sustain yourself these days, it adds to the variety of your diet and gives you a sense of adventure in terms of what you're doing. So I think that this, what I like about it is the notion of reevaluating whether all this progress has been as progressive as we might think. And it puts us in a position where we can pick and choose among the older traditions that interest us versus the uh, conveniences that are now so part and parcel of our lives. Mm-hmm. So let's um, kind of backtrack a little bit. Um, let's go back into the archives. After Hurricane Katrina hit, you spoke a bit about the affirmation that red beans and rice afforded the community. And so how can food not only be used um, as a way of exploring these past traditions, but maybe used for empowerment and affirmation, um, a tool of maybe gathering up some of our lost pieces? In many ways, it's parallel to the question I just answered in the sense that Part of what modernity has done in terms of food is it's created national food culture in a way that even a country as large as the United States has a few emblematic foods that you can eat from coast to coast, 
but none of them speak with any specificity about the particular region of this large country from which you or I hail. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, in order to start talking about uh, something like red beans being an anthem for people in a particular region, you have to sort of um, wean them off of the idea that Burger King or Popeye's fried chicken or, or um, um, Olive Garden are the national foods or are the appropriate foods. So what we're finding both in food and in music is this sense that things are being so commodified that region makes no difference. The people in Miami are listening to the exact same thing as the people in Seattle or eating the exact same thing as the people in Boston or eating the same thing as the people in, in Dallas. Now, there's always been those regional differences that have been celebrated and have been kept alive, in part because people like to eat food that reflects their heritage and their background, their traditions. So it's not as if Burger King has totally erased all other um, regional foods. But we have to fight harder to keep that from happening more than it has already. Hmm. So instead of um, we are actively choosing to make these foods our emblem as opposed to these foods naturally, um, very romantically becoming our symbols? It's very difficult to have a cultural resonance with something you create um, inorganically. Mm -hmm. Red beans and rice are important in New Orleans because people have been eating them for generations. There's an interesting thing where the mayor of Atlanta, Shirley Franklin, this was going back uh, 15 or 20 years, she wanted to create an emblem for the city of Atlanta because Atlanta has become so important, particularly in terms of R and being hip hop. Now, I don't live in Atlanta. Um, I did hear the answer at one point. I have not tracked its progress, but I'm almost certain it did not achieve what she wanted it to achieve. One major problem with something like that is she is having an anthem created by people in the generation who are now between 25 and 50 years old. So this has no meaning or resonance for people much older than that. However, songs that you grew up listening to in your church or in whatever other uh, musical settings you might have been involved in, those have a kind of meaning for you, even if it's not the same sort of charge you get when you hear your favorite song on the radio. When we talk about food and we talk about this notion of comfort food in the sense of something that reminds you of your past and of your traditions, those things have historical resonance that you cannot manufacture and you certainly cannot achieve in the short term. Yeah, I think that actually goes back to what we were talking about with barbecue. Um, I feel like everyone has this kind of very nostalgic idea or association to it you know it reminds you of summertime of flying kites etc cetera, etc cetera. and no matter where you are or where you live um yeah it's always really special yeah exactly um the what you find is that cultural expressions cross-pollinate so it's not just the food at a barbecue, but it's also the fact that you're there with your cousins or you're there at the church picnic and everyone is around you and the band may be playing or it may remind you of your first crush. All those kinds of things 
help make the experience what it is. Because even in writing about food, you know, it's hard to write about how something tastes. Mm-hmm. Now, it's easy if I can say, well, even though they made this in Madagascar, it tastes very much like something you once had in Jamaica. I can do that. Mm-hmm. But to try to really explain something complex to you so that you will taste it has all but impossible. But what I can do is recreate the experience or create, write about it in such a way as it will resonate with all of your senses, even though the words on the page are insufficient to really make your taste buds come alive in the way that I might like. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, I'm thinking of a lot of Bon Appetit or uh, Grub Street articles where it's like, oh, that was very crisp and lively. And it's like, that means nothing to me, actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of buzzwords. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're listening to Meant to Be Eaten. Um, we'll be back after a really short break. what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. There's no need to And we're back. Um, I'm speaking with writer Lois Eric Eli, and we were just talking about the lasting intangibles of food and our memories of food. Um, and so in an article in Food and Wine um, reporting on the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, there's a quote, there are no restaurateurs on the mayor's Bring New Orleans Back Commission, and if the city, if the country had any sense of responsibility, we'd make sure it survives. So how and why are restaurants important for much more than just feeding people? Um, Joanne Clevenger, who I think won a Southern Foodways Alliance Award a couple of years ago for her brilliant work as a restaurateur, noted that the word restaurant comes from the Latin restore, meaning literally to restore. Hmm. And viewed in that context, restaurants, one, provide you with the food and sustenance you need. And two, if you think about restaurants in the sort of context of a place where community gathers. In the best case scenario, you know at least a few of the people who are there. And in that sense, the restaurants are part and parcel of what it is that makes you a part of a society or a part of a group. In the context of something like New Orleans, people returned after the levee failures of 2005 and they literally had no kitchens that they could work in. The refrigerators were moldy, um, and therefore, and you had no other way of, of maintaining food. So often you're going out to eat more often than you otherwise might have. And therefore, gatherings at restaurants, impromptu gatherings at restaurants became very important. Um, but I think what happens is when politicians form policies, 
they think about restaurants as only places to eat. And in that sense, even though they themselves might gain a whole lot more when they go to a restaurant in the context of seeing people and feeling at home in a certain kind of way, they don't understand the extent to which this expression of culture is crucial to a kind of psychological wholeness of the community. Um, and so speaking on contemporary cuisine in New Orleans, do you feel like a lot of restaurants are still providing that kind of um, feeding ground, quote-unquote, uh, for the communities? Well, let me be careful, because as much as I love New Orleans and as much as I'm convinced that it's God's country, I want to be careful not to suggest that we are so different and so particular mm-hmm. as to not be more broadly instructive. I think restaurants provide that kind of, of, of service all across the world. And different restaurants do it in different ways. There are the places that are very fancy and very expensive, and you can only go to them once every three or four years. So clearly it's unlikely you're going to walk in there and be greeted by the guy who's going to remember you for how often you come. Mm-hmm. But in many ways it might make more sense to think about it in terms of coffee shops and cafes. Hmm. And you all had the experience of walking into a coffee shop, and the guy in front of us simply walks in the door, walks up, picks up his coffee, because the barista already knows his order, because he comes every day. That is the most extreme example of this sense of creating a community. Hmm. And in the New Orleans context, indeed, the restaurants still provide that, um, and also there are a bunch of new restaurants popping up in neighborhoods that may not always have had a lot of restaurants at their disposal. And so it becomes a natural gathering place for the new residents of those communities to go. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're living in Los Angeles now? Yes. Do you notice the same kind of communities um, around cafes, or do you feel like it's a bit different? I certainly see it around coffee shops because those places are so inexpensive and so ubiquitous that you can talk about them in a certain way. One of the problems we're talking about large American cities now is that there's so much gentrification and so much influx that the communities themselves are changing. So if you want to understand the way in which this phenomenon works, probably better off going into some of the ethnic enclaves or into some of the older neighborhoods that have not been totally gentrified yet, where there is still a sense that people know their neighbors and have a kind of, of interaction. But, you know, all of this, again, is being eroded in part by the proliferation of chains and fast food establishments and also the automobile, meaning it is so easy to go across town there's so many options available to you. So the very idea of going to the same restaurant and cafe every day is less likely. Now, the differences between coffee and coffee shops is a lot, uh, is a lot smaller than the differences between restaurants. And that's why I think coffee shops are fulfilling this role in a way that restaurants used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially living uh, here in Brooklyn. I feel like even if I really have an excellent meal, I may never return because there are just so many 
other places to go to. And that kind of makes me sad. Um, and even worse, yeah. there's so many delivery options where it's like, oh, I don't even have to go to the place where they can just bring me the food, which is <laughs> not a great way of uh, encouraging community building. Um, yeah, yeah, so so you're living in L.A. now. Are you still writing about food? Are you studying something else? I, I realize this means a big <laughs> shift in what you're studying or uh, setting your eyes on. Uh, I'm always writing and thinking about a variety of things. Most of my focus has late has been on uh, writing for television. And also, Los Angeles is so large that it's difficult for me to conceive of what I would say about its food at this point. Mm-hmm. So I got no immediate plans to write about Los Angeles food, but I certainly got my um, face buds and eyes wide open for the possibilities. Mm-hmm. I actually grew up in uh, Southern California, and every time I go back, it's like, completely different. It's crazy. Ah, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, Los Angeles is really like 10 cities masquerading as one. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, I think, a big part of its problem um, because in most other parts of the country, if you drive for 45 minutes, you're in a different city. Here, no, you're just in another part of Los Angeles. (laughs) Right. Yeah, um, when I tell people I'm from California, people that aren't familiar with, they're like, oh, yeah, so you you know San Francisco or you're there all the time it's like no that's really far I can't even make it to LA <laughs> yeah. from, from my house um, so let's talk about Ugly Delicious um, how did you get working on that um, and yeah how did you start um, David Chang and I had met each other a few times and I suspect that uh, it just sort of coalesced into him saying oh this would be an interesting guy to have on the show mm-hmm. You know, he was on uh, Treme when I was writing on Treme. We had dinner a couple of times in that context. And I met him through the Southern Foodways Alliance. So I got this call. I was doing this fried chicken episode. And I think what happened is when we met in New Orleans, they liked some of the things that I said when we began talking about me also joining them in Atlanta. So, um, you know, what he's attempting to do on that show is, I, at first I, had, I couldn't understand it. And so I actually saw the show itself and his sort of reevaluation of how to talk about food and how to film such conversations, I think, is very interesting and very engaging. What were your initial hesitations with the show? Well, I didn't have any hesitations. It's just that I couldn't quite understand what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And as an example, I flew to Seattle to talk to Eduardo Jordan, and I was waiting for David to show up. And David never did. I'm like, wait a minute, it's David Chang's show. How am I, you know, why am I uh, leading this discussion? Mm. And then I realized that part of their conception of how to do this show was to have interesting people in conversation with each other, mm-hmm. even if David was not a part of the discussion. Yeah. So as, a, as I began to understand that, I relaxed a bit. Mm-hmm. I think that's really special and um I guess, good for him and and leading the charge on that instead of, I feel like a lot of food shows are maybe not so uh, so much more in the future, but in the past it's been like, oh, you know, Anthony Bourdain goes to blank or Andrew Zimmern goes to blank and you don't get um, what the people themselves are really all about. Yeah. And it's possible that somebody like Andrew, I mean, uh, Anthony Bourdain or David Chang can so alter the discussion that 
every now and then it might be good to have a discussion between two people who are not as famous, but who are also reflective and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that episode on fried chicken, you explained that sometimes the most effective method of resistance is to embrace the hurtful stereotypes and reinvent them. So can you talk a bit more about this? What does this mean? Um, hmm. When you think about the kinds of things, the ways in which people have used stereotypes, the general proposition, they contain a grain of truth that has been misshapen in such a way as to be made most hurtful. You know, when you talk about that grain of truth, in the course of, in the case of black folks, you talk about the fact that we um, enjoy fried chicken. In the case of other ethnic groups, you talk about, for example, the smells of Asian cooking being so foreign to American noses. If you can take those things and make them badges of pride, if you can say to yourself that I, these people, given their attitudes and their ignorance, are unfit to judge me, and therefore I will enjoy these expressions despite the fact that they are attempting to hurt me with them, then that forms a kind of armor against the insult that the outsiders would seek to have you you, uh, feel. What made that most difficult in previous generations was the extent to which a white, middle-class, sort of East Coast norm of what American culture was supposed to be was used to define and measure everyone, when in fact it never measured everyone, not even all white Americans. But now that we're, we're in an environment now where the two things happening simultaneously, on one hand, you have these crazy white people trying to invent a history of America that gives them a kind of primacy culturally that they've never had, or a kind of, of singular American culture that has never existed. But you also have it embraced by interesting, important, thoughtful people of a range of cultures and cultural possibilities. So it's kind of funny for us to even be having this conversation now because the worst of it is is over. You know, and I don't, I'm not certain if I had been born in 1940 or 1950, it would have been as easy for me to eat fried chicken or watermelon on television as one example of what I'm talking about, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this reminds me of uh, the artist Kara Walker, her silhouetted cutouts, which kind of um, illustrate these stere- or some stereotypical folklore images. And she's been criticized a lot for perpetuating stereotypes. And I feel like that's a huge misreading of her work. And how do you respond to these criticisms? I think that what she is doing is being in dialogue with this tradition mm-hmm. and questioning it and questioning its efficacy. So I'm more inclined to agree with you. I... Um, you know, her images are very troubling, and there's a sort of subtle violence to a lot of them as well. But often what is left out of the discussion of American history and American culture is the violence that often was its underpinning. So I, um, I'm i not opposed to, to the work she's doing. In fact, I think that we need to broaden our analysis of what it means. Mm-hmm. 
I've been speaking with New Orleans-born, Los Angeles-based writer Lois Eric Eli. This has been Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network, now on Sundays at 3 o'clock. I'll catch you guys next week. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lois. It's been my pleasure, Coral. You take care. You too. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.